We are in Acts chapter 6, if you will turn there with me, Acts 6, 1 through 10. I just need to share a couple of things with you before we get into the Word today. Um, We have a couple of trips coming up that we're offering. Uh, One is this next fall, October 6th through 11th. To Glen Airy, Colorado, there is a uh, this is a retreat center right outside of Colorado Springs. It's beautiful. Um, we go and we do Bible study in the morning and in the evening, but the, most of the day you have just time to enjoy the beauty of that place. If you're interested, there's a brochure out there. And next year, a year from now, we're taking a trip to Israel, um, and there are details in a brochure out there. You, there's also a way to get signed up for that. If you're interested, if you have questions, just let me know. Um, also, if you're studying the Bible with us, we're reading through the whole Bible this year. That's one of our four challenges in All In. Well, yesterday you started Leviticus. You're welcome. Yeah, isn't that fun? Yeah, I will, I will just admit to you, that is a difficult book of the Bible to read. There's so much about it that's just alien to us. Although, uh, as one, one of our members said to me, you know, it kind of reminds me of hunting. You know, all the, all the field dressing and all the, you know, the carving up animal bodies. It's rather gruesome, but you might need a little help with that. So I've written a a preview guide, just just some tips, a preview to the book, and themes to look for, as well as ways to see the gospel in Leviticus. You can pick that up at the all-in table. I'm going to try to do that for each book of the Bible as we encounter it in our reading plan. Um, One more thing. This week, this Friday, I I had the honor to preach the funeral service of my grandmother, uh, my mom's dad, I mean, my dad's mom, um, who died at the age of 100. She died last Monday. And um, what a life. I mean, she was just one of these women who never drew attention to herself, just always, always focused on others. And we knew she was ready to go. Uh, she had a great, great grandmother who lived to be 106. Somebody asked her, Are you hoping for that? And she said, No. She was ready to go home. And so we rejoiced for her. I had the opportunity to preach the gospel to my extended family on my dad's side, some of whom don't know the Lord, and so that was a great opportunity, and I just, I, it was a blessing. Just wanted to share that with you. So we're in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 10. So y'all gather around, boys and girls, because I'm going to tell you a story about the old days. See, once upon a time, there were these books called encyclopedias. Really, they were these, these big bound volumes that contained all the information about every subject that mattered from A to Z. And families used to go buy these. They would, they would purchase, you could buy them in the mall or, or you could send off for them in the mail. Or a salesman would come to your door and try to convince you that if you really love your children, you'll buy them a set of these encyclopedias. And, and so you would order them and they would come in these big wooden crates and you, you know, dad would pop them open with his crowbar and you would clear off space on the family bookshelf, or you might even build a brand new bookshelf right there in the family room so that everyone who visits can see our family values knowledge. Look, here's our monument to knowledge right here. Here's 36 volumes of this encyclopedia. And so that way, when little Billy Bob needed to know when and where Dwight D. Eisenhower was born, or how many people died when the Titanic sank, or who fought in the Crimean War... The information was right there at his fingertips. But there was a problem with that system. Number one, it was very expensive. Number two, it took up a lot of space. And number three, it was immediately obsolete. I mean, even if you ordered it brand new, there was all kinds of stuff that had happened between the time they printed that encyclopedia and the time you received it in the mail. 
Now, growing up, we had a set of encyclopedias that were written before I was born, and so you can imagine things that, uh, that had happened within the last 10, 15 years weren't even in there. So that was rather frustrating. Then, around 2001, actually in January of 2001, a new website was launched. It was, a, it was the brainchild of a group of people who said, why not create a free encyclopedia that will be constantly updated? All you need is access to the internet, and you can get information on anything. We won't use experts. We'll let regular people write the articles. We'll let regular people edit it and make sure it's always accurate. And you know it as Wikipedia, launched in January of 2001. Now, skeptics were roundly criticizing this idea. In fact, people to this day scoff at Wikipedia because there's this idea that you can't let ordinary people write articles in an encyclopedia because then you'll just spread the ignorance, right? But if you actually use the site, you know everything is referenced. Everything is footnoted. It's really difficult to, to put in... Well, it's not difficult to put incorrect information on Wikipedia. It's hard to get away with it. If you try to edit one of those pages to say something that's just your opinion or something that is just uh, roundly false, it's going to be caught. For instance, if I were to get on Wikipedia today and find the Houston Texans page and I were to write, since their founding, the Houston Texans have been by far the most successful franchise in the NFL, it wouldn't last but a few minutes. Someone would flag it and it would be removed. Sad to say, as a Houston fan, that's not true. But if, on the other hand, I wrote on there, since their founding, the Houston Texans have won 121 games and have lost 151, and if I cited a source like profootballreference.com, it would stand because it's footnoted, it's documentable. And so, to this day, in fact, today, 495 million people every month visit Wikipedia. If you were to take all the information that's on that site and print it out, you would need 15,000 volumes. I don't have a bookshelf that big. I don't know about you. So what they've done, these people have absolutely democratized knowledge. Anybody has access to the same information. It's not whether you've been to college or not. It's not whether you have enough money to buy this set of books. All you need is one of these. If you've got a smartphone, you can look up anything about anything, and you can get the most up-to-date information. In fact, in fact, I bet there's somebody in this room that has already looked up to see that if my information about the Houston Texans was accurate, right? Don't you think? See, that makes my job hard. I, I can't just tell stories and get away with it, because there's always somebody Googling what I just said. Okay, Jeff, is that right? So, so he, here's the thing. We're in a series right now called What the World Needs Now. What the world needs is reconciliation with the God that made her. See, the, the root of all of our problems is that we are estranged from the God who created us, the God who loves us, the God whose love and grace can sustain us. And God takes that so seriously. He did a radical thing 2,000 years ago. He came to the earth in the form of a man. He died an atoning death to make it possible for us to be reconciled to him. And now the second part of his plan of redeeming this whole world and making this whole world what it was meant to be, what it should have been all along. The second part of the plan is us. People like us, Christians, his church, the body of Christ on earth, we are the ones through whom he spreads the good news so that people can be reconciled through Jesus Christ to God and be saved. 
And so we've been looking at the story of the early church in the book of Acts because our vision for First Baptist Conroe is that we would be a, a church that constantly reconciles people to God, that we would be a disciple-making church, that God would change our hearts, and more than anything else, every member of this church would desire that we would be world-changing disciple-makers. And so we're looking at Acts because we want to see what that actually looks like when it happens. What does a church look like when it's all in? And two weeks ago, we saw how the church began on the day of Pentecost, and we urged each other, hey, we need to be praying for revival, that God would do in our hearts what the Holy Spirit did in the hearts of the early church. Last week, we looked at, at how God did this amazing thing through just two people, Peter and John, in the, in the temple courtyard, and then that spirit spread to the entire congregation, and they prayed and said, Lord, make us more bold, and God answered, and even greater things happened. And so we said, okay, we know if we want to see disciples made in our culture, if we want to see Montgomery County changed in a powerful way for the sake of God, it's going to take all of us doing more. All of us giving more of ourselves. Remember, one of the, another one of the commitments we're challenging you to is to commit to generosity, to step up what you give to the Lord out of your resources and your, your talents and your, and your time. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about what it looks like, what what does God expect each one of us to do exactly? And here's your sermon in a sentence. If you're planning to check out, well, here's what you're going to hear. Here's what you're going to miss, okay? Your sermon in a sentence is, our church will never be what it was meant to be until we truly democratize ministry. Wikipedia democratized knowledge. It took it out of the hands of the experts, put it in the hands of ordinary people. And once our church gets it, Gets, it, gets the idea that everybody is responsible for serving God in, in the way God has called them to. Once we democratize ministry, there's no longer a delineation between clergy and lay people, but everybody is serving God, then we will be the church we're meant to be. See, because a lot of people, and I grew up this way, so I know, a lot of people have the mindset that, listen, my job as a Christian is to try to be a good person during the week, and on Sundays go to church whenever I can, and, and give as much money as I feel like I'm able to, and pray for God's work to be done, and then just sit back and wait for the, the trained people, the professional people, the pastors and the missionaries, they're the ones who are going to change the world. I'm just there as sort of background. I'm there to cheer them on. I'm there to support them. And those are the good church members who think that way. Well, you know who loves that way of thinking, that system, that arrangement? Satan loves that arrangement because it's easy for him to tackle a handful of trained clergy people. He can outwork us. He does not want the rest of y'all to understand how powerful you are. You know who else loves that arrangement? We do. Everybody in this room loves it because, number one, if you're not a professional, ordained clergy person, you're thinking, oh, well, then my responsibilities aren't that heavy. I just have to, you know, raise a family and go to work and, and do my best, and then I have professional people handling the spiritual stuff. And ministers love it because it makes us feel like heroes, right? We're so doggone important. You couldn't live without us. You know who doesn't love it? You know who's not well served by that arrangement? People without Jesus. Because most of them are never going to meet an ordained clergy person or a missionary. Most of them are never going to come stumbling into a church. And if they do, they're going to run right back out thinking, oh no, I thought this was the club. But so they are not well served by a church that has this idea of ministry that it's only in the hands of the pros. 
We need to democratize ministry. So what does that look like? What does a wiki church look like where everybody does their part? Well, look at chapter 6, and, and the, the background here is um, in chapter 6, we're about to read about the first big conflict in church history. Yes, the early church had a conflict, which proves they were probably Baptists. So, y'all, that was a joke, okay? It's okay to laugh. Uh, Acts 6, 1 says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So I need to stop and give you some background there. So the early church was mostly one race. It was mostly Jewish, but it was multilingual. There were, there were Jews in the early church who spoke Hebrew and Aramaic because they'd grown up in Israel, and there were Jews in the early church who had grown up in other countries, and they came to Christ because, remember, the early church started on the day of Pentecost when people were visiting from out of town, and they heard the gospel, and they got saved, and they just stuck around. So you had, you had people who spoke Hebrew, and then you had people who spoke all these other languages too. Plus, there was, it was multicultural. What I mean by multicultural is, I mean, we, we get it. There are churches in our time that are, that are kind of white-collar churches, and then there's cowboy churches, and there are old-timey churches, and there are black churches and Hispanic churches, et cetera, et cetera. This church was multicultural. There were people in the church who were not just Hebrew in language and in, in race, but Hebrew in their culture. They had grown up in Israel. They did things the old way. They rejected wider cultural trends, okay? So outside of Israel, the main driving cultural force was Hellenism. What is Hellenism? Hellenism is Greek culture. So you speak the Greek language, you go to plays, you go to Olympic-style games, you go to bathhouses, you read your Aristotle and your Plato and your, Aris and your Socrates, um, you, are, you, you eat Greek food, you are culturally Greek even though you're Jewish by faith. And so there were people of those two different cultures within the church, and that caused conflict, especially because there were widows within the church. And I don't know if y'all know this, but the first century world was a hard world to be a woman because if you didn't have a husband... If you didn't have someone who earned a living for you, it was very hard for women to earn a living for themselves. There were a few who were able to, but very few. And so if you were widowed, especially it was difficult, especially if your, your kids weren't around, like a lot of these widows were at a geographic distance from their kids, or maybe they didn't have kids. And so the early church did a very Christ-like thing. They said, it's our responsibility to take care of the widows of our congregation. But when you've got a church of several thousand people, that's a big task, and eventually the conflict arose because the, the Hellenistic Jews, the Hellenistic Christians said, hey, our widows aren't being treated as well as the Hebrew widows. So they're, right there at the first century, there was an accusation of bias. And you know what? I bet they were right. I bet that's exactly what was happening. Not because the early church was evil, not because the early church meant to be biased. That's just the way we are. Without knowing, without even knowing what we're doing, we will often favor people who look like us and talk like us and think like us and sort of ignore the people who are different. And so the apostles were stuck. What are we going to do? We don't want there to be a split in our church. I mean, we don't want to tell these Greek-speaking brothers and sisters of ours, hey, you guys need to hit the road. 
You need to form your own church. So they did a very wise thing instead. Verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to the prayer, to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So the twelve refers to the original twelve apostles plus Matthias, who was chosen once Judas killed himself. And so these are men who walked with Jesus personally. These are men Jesus chose, Jesus had poured into, had trained, had invested in over the course of three years. And they said to the rest of the church, listen, guys, our calling is to preach the gospel. Our calling is to be spiritual leaders We can try to mediate this dispute. We can try to make sure that all the widows get taken care of, but if we do, then the preaching of the Word of God is going to suffer. Then the spiritual leadership of this church is going to suffer. So we think it would be better if you let us do what we're called to do and call some some good people to take over this other aspect, to come alongside us and help us do what can't be done just among the 12 of us. And listen to this next line. This proposal pleased the whole group. Don't you love it when you say to somebody, I need help, and they say, I thought you'd never ask, what do you need? That's what the early church said. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. See, you may not notice this, you may not know this, but those are all Greek names. What's significant about that is the early church was wise enough to say, okay, we've got 12 Hebrew disciples who are leading us, let's diversify our leadership. Let's, let's choose seven men who are Greek in culture so that there's, their voice is heard as well, and they're going to serve God. Now this, by the way, side note, This is known to a lot of Christians as the choosing of the first seven deacons. You'll notice that word is not used in this passage. I do agree this is probably how deacons got started, but I want you to understand something. You don't need a title to serve God. I think that's why it's significant that the word deacon is not used here. So, verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So that last sentence is significant. You would think, okay, so they, they came up with a great solution to this, to this uh, burgeoning conflict in the church. They settled things so, the, so things were, were uh, reconciled and, and, and Jews and Hellenists were back together and everything was fine. And even if that was all that was done, hallelujah. But no, something even greater happened. The church spread faster. More people heard the gospel, even some of the priests. Now, who are the priests? They're the religious leaders of the Jews. Who, during Jesus' lifetime, was most opposed to Jesus? Who refused to hear the truth from Him? Who refused to hear and believe that He was resurrected? The religious leaders of Israel. Now, for the first time in history, aside from Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, first time in history, some of those religious leaders, the people who were violently opposed to Jesus before, now they're becoming believers. And Luke indicates it's because lay people stepped up and started doing ministry. Lay people stepped up and said, hey, I don't don't have to be a trained clergy person. I've got a role to play too. 
And those priests must have seen it and thought, man, that doesn't happen in my religion. That doesn't happen in any religion I've ever heard of. There must be something about this. Now let's go on because something even more exciting happens. Because if we stop here, you might get the impression that, okay, so I'm not a trained clergy person, but uh, so that means I can't like tell people about Jesus. I can't do spiritual stuff, but I can do behind the scenes stuff, right? Wrong. Verse 8. Now Stephen, recognize that name? He's one of the seven. He's one of these seven lay people who stepped forward. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Now who are these guys and what's the matter with them? These are Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem, who hear that a Hellenistic Jew named Stephen is out there preaching a message. Now, what is he preaching? We know this from chapter 7, which we'll read next week. He's preaching that we don't need the temple anymore because we have Jesus. Jesus is our temple. We don't need to go offer sacrifices. Jesus is our sacrifice. We don't need priests anymore. Jesus is our priest. See, here's the thing. If you were a first century Jew, there was nothing in your world, not your spouse, not your children, not your home, not your parents. Nothing in the world was more important to you than that temple in Jerusalem. That was your identity. That's where God dwelt. The temple had already been destroyed once before, and it was devastating. They lived in constant fear that something else would happen to this second temple. And now one of their own is out there saying, we don't need the temple anymore. Well, they had to shut him up quick before something bad happened. And so they began to oppose Stephen. Now you would think that one guy who didn't even walk with Jesus, who hadn't met Jesus, who, who, uh, I mean, had met him but not face to face, one man who hadn't been trained by Jesus against an entire synagogue full of devout believers in the God of the Jews, that he'd have no chance, right? Verse 10 says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Holy Spirit gave him as he spoke. They were no match for him because the Spirit was upon him. Now, that's going to lead to something next week. But here's what I want to tell you in the meantime. Here's the point. The more people there are in a church who take responsibility for the work of God's kingdom, the more the kingdom expands. See, the reason I'm saying that, I just want you to understand something. If our church... If First Baptist Conroe makes the kind of impact on this community that I think it should, that I think it's destined to, it won't be because I'm a good preacher. It won't be because of Robert and Nathan leading powerful worship. It won't be because our, our student ministry and our children's ministry are so effective or because our building is so beautiful. Now, we're responsible for all those things. And I have to stand before you and before the Lord and say I did my best. But if it happens, it won't be because of that. It'll, it'll, it'll happen because God's people, that's you, begin to take personal responsibility for the spread of God's kingdom. You begin to find your role. You begin to find your calling. Your calling in God's plan. And you begin accomplishing it. And that's how God's kingdom is going to grow. And that's how lives are going to get changed. And that's how a community is going to be transformed. So, I just want to make you aware, I'm not, when I talk about all this stuff, involvement, ministry, I'm not talking about volunteering within the church. Now, that's important, don't get me wrong, 
We need people to play in the worship band. We need people to volunteer in the, in the kids' ministry, in the student ministry. We need people to lead life groups and serve on committees and greet people and do all kinds of other things. And we do those things because that's what you do in a family. You pitch in. You get the work done. I'm talking about things that happen outside the walls. I'm talking about things that show the love of Christ to people who don't know Him. I'm talking about the fact that everybody in this room was created by God for a purpose. If you were with us last year and you actually listened, you may remember that all through 2018 we talked about one thing. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works which He prepared ahead of time for you to do. Ephesians 2.10 You have a purpose in this world. You have a calling. Just like I have a calling to be a pastor, you have a calling to do something. And guess what? Your calling may not be what you do for a living. You may not get paid for your calling. You might, but many of you won't. Your calling also is not restricted to your job as a parent. If you're blessed with children, if you're blessed with a spouse, hallelujah, that's your first responsibility before God, but your responsibility to God does not end there. If every Christian said, hey, my, my mission field is my family and that's it, no one would reach the lost. Your calling is something beyond the four walls of your home and beyond the four walls of the church building. And I don't know what your calling is, but God does. So how do you find it out? Because a lot of people, and this is, this is for years, I felt inadequate because people would come to me as a pastor and say, I want to get involved. I want to serve. I want to do what God put me here on the earth to do. So tell me, preacher, what do I do? And I'd kind of fumble around and go, well, you know, we need help in the nursery. I don't know. And then I realized, you know, it's, it's really funny. I'm actually not the Holy Spirit. It's kind of funny. You know, my wife could have told me that a long time ago if I'd asked her. I am not the Holy Spirit of God. And so when you come to me and you say, what should I do, Jeff? I don't know. Because I'm not him. But he knows. I want, to, I want to just give you a set of questions you can ask yourself. To wrestle with prayerfully. And these questions, I think, will help you find your role in God's plan. So you ready? You might want to write these down. Number one, what are my spiritual gifts? What are my spiritual gifts? If you're not familiar with the concept of spiritual gifts, look up Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Um, the Scriptures talk about the fact that every member of Christ's body, in other words, every believer in Jesus, has been blessed by God with some blend of spiritual ability. You can teach the Bible really well, or you're really great at working with kids, or you're terrific at organization and, and, and leading ministry. You're, you're really great at, at identifying need and, and meeting that need. There's some gift you have. You can serve God in a way that no one else can. Find that spiritual gift. That's going to help you know your calling. Number two, what am I good at? See, beyond the spiritual gifting, you were born with certain abilities, you're really coordinated, so you can shoot a basketball or you can swing a golf club. You're really great at art or you're really great at fixing things. You have some innate ability. You also have skills down through the course of your life. Your, your dad taught you this particular skill or your mom taught you how to do this thing. Or maybe when you started in your career, your, uh, your industry taught you, trained you to do something. You ought to ask, Lord, here's my list of skills. How can these be useful to you? I have two skills. I can preach, and I can watch three football games at the same time. 
And that's it. And, and one of those is really useful to God's kingdom and one of them isn't. So you need to decide, you need to discern, how can my skills, my talents, and spiritual gifts be useful to God's kingdom? Third question, what am I passionate about? See, here's the thing, and, and here's what a lot of people miss. A lot of people are, are afraid to commit and say, okay, I will serve God, I will find my role, and I will do my part because they're afraid that God's going to give them a job they hate. And that's not God. Everybody I've ever met who is doing what they were called to do, they love their calling. Now, they might get discouraged sometimes, but they love their calling. So what are you passionate about? What fires your engine? What, what gets you motivated? That's going to help you find your calling. Number four, what need in our community grips my heart? See, whatever your calling is, it's not going to be focused on you. It's going to be focused on other people. It's going to be focused on blessing them and drawing them to Christ and His love. So if you get really upset when you see homeless people and you say someone needs to reach out to those folks, or if you hear stories on the news about human trafficking and you're like, someone needs to stop this now, or, or maybe your, your issue is domestic violence or education or poverty or hunger, whatever it is that you care about, that you weep about, that's a guide to what God has laid on your heart in terms of calling. And, and by the way, if you're one of those people that is just kind of proud of being crusty and hard and you don't weep over anything, well, that's a problem. Ask the Lord to teach you some tears because you need them. You need a broken heart over the suffering in this world. What need in our community grips my heart. Number, number five, who do I know who is far from God? In the second sermon of this year, second Sunday of the year, we challenged every member of our church as one of our four commitments to pray for lost people every day. We gave you a, a method to use. It's called concentric circles of concern. You drew the seven circles and you wrote in those circles all the different people you know who are distant from God. I hope you've done that exercise. And I hope you've started praying for those people. If you haven't started yet, start. If you weren't here for that sermon or you lost the diagram, we've got copies of it on the all-in table. Please stop and take one on your way out, along with that thing about Leviticus. So you need to work through these. As you're praying for lost people, that can be a guide to God's calling on your life. You may notice, wow, all the people, just about all the people I'm praying for, all the people I know who are lost, they all live in this part of town or they all work in this particular industry or all, they're all part of this particular ethnic group. Maybe that's a guide to where I should be ministering for Christ. Then finally, you combine all those questions into number six. How can my gifts, skills, passions, heart, and relationships be used in God, God's work? You pray about that question. You pray about that question until you find your calling. And don't sit in a lotus position waiting for something to happen. I mean, go out and serve. Do good deeds. When you see an opportunity to help somebody, help them. When you hear a call for volunteers and you can, go volunteer. As you're doing good deeds and as you're praying and seeking God, He will show you the way. And let me just give you a few stories and then I'm done. Examples of this in action. So Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in California is pastored by John Ortberg, who's one of my favorite preachers. I podcast him every week. His church has a ministry to families that are dealing with mental illness. And it started 15, 20 years ago because a couple in that church had a son who suffered from, from schizophrenia. 
And the son had a major episode. It was traumatic. They were sitting there thinking, man, I wish our church could help us in some way. But of course, no one knew what to do. And they thought, there needs to be a ministry to families like us. So they said, well, I guess we ought to just start it. So all they did was they put it out there. They said, uh, any families that are struggling with someone in your family suffering from mental illness? By the way, uh, the estimates are that 20% of Americans at some point will struggle with some form of mental illness. So there's probably someone in your family right now struggling with some form of mental illness. You're not alone. They put that out there. If, if you have someone in your family struggling with this, um, then get together with us next Wednesday. We're just going to eat a meal together and share. That's all they did. They just ate together. They just shared thoughts about, here's what's going on with my son. Here's what's going on with my wife. Here's something that helped me. Here's, here's something you need to pray for for me. Occasionally, they'd bring in a guest speaker. And that ministry went on from there. It became nationwide. It's, it's reached so many people, many of whom weren't believers in Christ when they started. I'll tell you another story closer to me. Um, My previous church, we adopted a local elementary school. McNamara Elementary School was about a mile or two from our church. Uh, It was a church, I mean, it was a school that with a fantastic uh, staff and faculty, but very, very little parental involvement. When you've got a school with very little parental involvement, there's only so much the teachers can do. It's not that the parents didn't care. Many of them were didn't speak English, so they couldn't really help their kids with their homework. Some of them were single moms or or grandparents raising kids, and they were working too hard. They couldn't show up to PTO meetings. They couldn't volunteer. They couldn't get involved in their kids' education. So all these kids were just struggling because of the lack of resources. Our church came alongside, and we tutored kids, and we we, uh, invested in the teachers and helped them with, uh, with basically uh, morale boosting. We, we helped families financially. We did so many things. We hosted events for the school and for the families. For, so over five or six years, we just built relationships there. And then finally, after five or six years, a couple in our church came to me and said, we want to start a Bible club on that campus. Can we do that? And I said, well, constitutionally, absolutely you can, but I need to talk to the principal first. Now, Miss Chenier was a great Christian woman. I, I prayed with her every Tuesday morning before school. And she heard this and she said, yes, yes, we will reserve a room for you. Y'all come on Wednesdays after school. Anybody who wants to study the Bible with you is welcome. And they started that Bible club. And as far as I know, it's still going. And I could tell more and more stories. I could tell lots of stories here, but you've already heard them about how Mission Conroe got started or ESL or the Homeless Meal on Tuesdays or the Happy Strings Ukulele Band. There's so many little ministries reaching our community that started here because lay people, not ministers, lay people said someone needs to do something and it might as well be me. And it could be that one of those ministries that we already have meets exactly what you want to accomplish for God, what you feel called to do. It could be that there's something out in our community, some ministry, some charity, some group that's doing what you feel called to do and you can partner with them. It's not disloyalty if you're a member here, but your calling is serving alongside some other group. That's fine as long as God's kingdom is being spread. It could very well be that what you feel called to do has never been done around here before and you're the person that gets to start it. But my point is, you're here for a purpose. So pray to God and say, Lord, what am I called to do? Why did you make me? What did you put me here on this earth to accomplish? Who are the people you want me to reach? How can all my gifts and talents and passions and heart and relationships, how can all that combine to serve you in a unique way that draws people to salvation? Pray over that. 
Keep doing good deeds. Keep serving. And just see what God does. Because when there's a church full of people who are doing what God put them here to do, that will scare the snot out of Satan and it'll draw untold numbers of people to salvation. And I can't wait to see it because I know it's going to happen. That's the kind of church we're called to be.